So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. I want to take just a moment. You know, we're so blessed at St. Luke's to have such incredible musicians. You know, Laura Cunningham plays her violin for us on such a regular time in worship and in so many other services outside of worship. And we're always so very, very grateful to you, Laura, for the way that you inspire and bless us. But this morning, we also have a very special guest. Joe Effinger was playing this morning. And what I wanted to simply call out to you is probably about five years ago, I would guess that Joe was a lot like me. He didn't know one end of a cello from another. But Joe has been a part of our El Sistema after-school ministry for the last five years. And so today he was here to use his gifts to inspire and bless us today. And Joe, we are so grateful. Thank you very much. Ogmandino is one of my favorite authors. He's passed away now, died when he was only 72. It turned out he wrote 19 books. They sold over 50 million copies. His books were always so very inspirational and and always had a very biblical undertone to all of them. He touched so many lives. And he tells the story of when he was on a promotional book tour and on his way to Nashville. When he arrived at Nashville, there was a a taxicab driver waiting for him. His name was um, Raymond Bright. Ray had been born there in Nashville, grew up. It was his hometown. He loved it, and he was proud of it. And as they began driving, Ray was telling him all about the city and, and all about the historical spots. They were on their way to a television station because Og was going to be giving one of these noon daytime television interviews about his book. But he was already working on that next book. And he was working to try to base it around that concept. How would you live if you knew today was your last day? Now, that's nothing new. I mean, we've all heard that concept before. How would you live if this were your last day here on earth? But he was also developing a corollary to that by asking the question, How would you treat the people around you? How would you treat that person next to you if you knew they were going to be dead at midnight? How would you be treating the other person if you knew it was their last day on earth? Well, maybe it's because he had been working on this whole concept. When they pulled up to the television station, he suddenly felt so inspired and and he said, Ray... Have you ever been a part of a live TV audience? Have you ever seen behind the scenes and how they do a television show? No, no, I haven't. 
Would you like to see it? Yes. Ray immediately, he, he turned off the meter and they went inside. You can only imagine how surprised the producer was when Og came up and said, I'd like to introduce my special guest to you. It's Raymond Bright. He's my taxi cab driver. I'd like to give him a front row seat here in the VIP section. And I'm asking that you give him a VIP tour behind the scenes. And so they did. He got through the television interview and he said, Ray, we got to go, man. I, I'm supposed to be at Cokesbury Bookstore. It's actually a Methodist bookstore. I got to be at Cokesbury Bookstore to do a book signing. And they jumped in the car and they took off. When they arrived, he said, you ever been a part of a book signing? No, no, I haven't. Would you like to be? Yes. He came inside, sat down right beside Og as he's signing all these books and talking to these people. He got through and said, man, I'm hungry. I'm looking for a hamburger. And Ray said, I, I know just the place. He took him to his favorite place. When they got through with lunch, Og reached for his wallet. And Ray said, no, no, this one's on me. They got back in the car and Og said, I got to do a radio show. It's a live interview on a radio show. You ever been to a live radio show? No, no. Would you like to? Yes. He came in, sat right down beside Og while they got on the headsets and did the interview on the radio. When he finally got through with that, he said, I am late for my plane. We've got to run. They headed back to the hotel, checked out, jumped in the car, headed for the airport. And Og said, by now, I was tired. And he said, I was sitting in the back seat, kind of starting to doze, when suddenly Ray said, Mr. Og, I will never forget this day the rest of my life. Why is that, Ray? Well, today, I felt special. I felt important. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. They pulled up to the airport. He was late. They pulled up quickly, and Ray jumped out to get around to the trunk to get out his bag. Og needed to run, but right there in the middle of the road, he wasn't going anywhere because Ray wrapped his arms around him, gave him this big bear hug, and said, Mr. Og, I love you. I love you too, Ray. I love you too. And he was sprinting for his gate. But while he was headed off, he kept thinking to himself, dead. At midnight. How would you treat somebody if you knew this was their last day on earth? How would you live your life if you knew it was your last day on earth? Today is the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent is going to be a time of self-reflection, introspection. It's a time for us to be looking at our own life and asking, how are we living in the awareness of death? Lent is the time each year when we focus not only about looking at our life, but also confronting the issue of death. And this last week, we were all confronted with that issue of death again, with the horrible school shooting at Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. I mean, when you saw all the people on TV and the parents and these teenagers, you couldn't help but be moved with a sense of grief 
and sadness, the overwhelming tragedy, it seems to happen again and again. I saw one of the students there, teenager, 16, 17, 18 years old. She had found out about the FBI and how they had missed all of these tips, had not followed up on them. She was angry. She was saying, you know, they should be protecting all of the children, all the students in this country. They should protect all of our teachers. They should be protecting everybody from this. And I understood where she was coming from. We do need to do everything we can to protect our students. I believe there's a conversation that is needed. The answers may not be easy, but to do nothing and to expect something different. There's a name for that. It's time we discuss what do we do to try to protect our students and teachers But I also know at 63 years old, the reality is you can never be completely protected. How do you protect everybody from someone who goes up into a hotel window and knocks it out and shoots at a concert? There will always be drunk drivers. There will always be tornadoes and fires. No, at 63, the one thing I'm clear about is there will always be tragedy. Things happening beyond our control. And we come to realize that no matter what, not everyone can be protected. What we come to realize is that death is a part of life. And we don't know if today is our last day or it is the last day for the person sitting next to us. Who could have imagined as a parent that you sent your child to school that morning and you wouldn't get to see them that evening? That your spouse would go to work or that a spouse or a friend would go to a concert and you don't come home. The uncertainties of life and death is a very real part of that. I saw a tweet that was sent out by... Adam Rippon, our American skater who won a bronze medal, when he heard about the shootings, he said, I got asked if competing at the Olympics was the most important day in my life. And the answer is no. Every day is important and shouldn't be taken for granted. The shootings have got to stop. Sending love to those who are hurting Every day is important. Every day matters. That's why in the season of Lent, these 40 days before Easter, not including Sundays, you and I are going to be looking at how are we living life? How are we loving people in the light of death? The awareness that we all die. Lent is very different from Advent. Advent is those four weeks before Christmas. And Advent, we light the four candles, hope, joy, peace, love. I mean, it's a joyful time. Lent is different. Lent is not depressing. 
Lent is not supposed to be negative, but it is more reflective. It is a time about us looking at our lives and how are we living and what do we do in the awareness of death so that you and I live fully now and we are prepared to face our own death or the death of a loved one. That's why this morning I want to start a sermon series entitled, In Matters of Life and Death and Life. And I wanted us to start this morning by looking at this passage from the book of John. Jesus is responding to the Pharisees. He has just healed a man, and they are very upset with what he is saying. And so Jesus gives them an analogy and says, You know, I am the gate, the sheep gate. The sheep go out through the gate to find pasture, to food, and to water. Whoever comes through me finds life. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares for the sheep. The hireling will run away, but the shepherd, he will lay down his life for his sheep. When the wolf comes, when the lion comes, the good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. You are the sheep, he says. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The good shepherd who comes so that you and I can have life and more abundantly. Lent is not about a time of beating yourself up or trying to feel guilty. It's about looking at your life. Are you living abundantly? Are you at peace with death and the promise of eternal life? It's what I want us to be thinking about through these next six weeks. And as you and I begin this morning, I, I just have two things that I want to be saying about our passage this morning. First of all, as the, in Lent, you and I as the followers of Christ are able to be excited, inspired, committed to living life well. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I don't know about you, but I, I've really enjoyed watching the Olympics. I don't get to see them all, but I, I try to catch them when I can. And you know, one thing that I'm so convinced of, you, you watch, it doesn't matter whether you win the gold or you come in last place, these athletes are amazing. And they are all incredibly talented, the things they can do. And what I really enjoy is not just those who win and lose and seeing how that works out. I, I like all the human interest stories, learning about them. One of those that I really enjoyed was Chloe Kim. I'm sure many of you saw her. The 17-year-old from California who's a snowboarder and was competing in the, the half pipe. Now, she's an amazing young lady out there snowboarding. Now, I remember when snowboarding was a brand new thing. I remember being out on the slopes back in the 1980s and the 90s. And I didn't like snowboarders. They looked out of control on the mountain. They were out of control on the mountain. I mean, these people were learning what to do with a snowboard. And, and man, it looked dangerous. Do you know that in 1983, only 10% of all ski resorts allowed snowboarding? By the late 1990s, 100% of all ski resorts allowed snowboarding. They saw it was the wave of the future 
And boy, people were learning and they were progressing and it became all the rage. Well, now you're watching these young kids participate there at the Olympics and do amazing things. It turned out that Chloe's father was immigrating from Korea to California back in 1983. He came to California. There he went to the University of California and got his degree. Married, three children, three girls. And as a young child, he learned to ski or learned to snowboard with Chloe. It's something they did together. And they had such a good time. And when she was a young girl, she went out and started competing and wound up winning um, race after race after race and winning in these half pipes. And so he wound up quitting his job and taking a much lesser job that gave him flexibility so he could be there to help her get better and pursue her dream of the Olympics. It was a sacrifice for everybody. She's now all of 17 years old. And she was participating that night and you watched her go flying up high and then you're twisting and turning and flipping over and coming down and landing and coming to the other side and doing it again. You know, you watched her come down this half pike. I mean, she was laying it down. She was stomping it. I don't know what all she was doing according to those words. (laughs) What I know is, I know greatness when I see it. Man, she was good. You had three runs, and the best of the three runs is where you get your points, and whichever one is the best. And at the end of the second run, she was in the lead. She was last in the third run. And by the time it came to her turn, it was obvious she'd already won. No one could catch her. She won the gold medal. And the commentators were saying, she's going to take a victory lap. And you just waited to kind of see her kind of come down and maybe do a few things, and boom, victory. No. She came down and she went higher than ever before. She did more demanding tricks and flips, more dangerous things than ever, and she stuck them all. She stomped it. She came to the bottom, and now she had a higher score, 98.25. And everyone was just stunned. And the commentator came over to her and said, Why did you do that? And I loved her answer. I didn't want to take home the gold with the run where I knew I could do better. I didn't want to take home the gold with a run where I knew I could do better. And I paused the TV right then and thought, I don't want to come to the end with a run where I know I could have done better. I think that's what Lent is about. You and I getting honest and looking at our lives. What kind of run are you giving? Are you being the person Christ has called you to be? Are you growing in your faith? Are you deepening your walk with Christ? Are you dreaming your dreams? I didn't want to take home the gold with a run where I knew I could do better. I'm watching this 17-year-old girl from California, and it started making me think about Grandma Luge. Any of you remember Grandma Luge? Her real name is Ann Abernathy. I I remembered her very well. I'm watching this, and I started thinking of Ann Abernathy. Ann Abernathy was born in the Virgin Islands. And then she came to the United States, and she went to school at the University of Texas and got a degree in music. 
She became a professional musician, a singer. She was making her living by a musician. And it was in the early 1980s that she went to Lake Placid for a a winter ski vacation. And while she was there, this person came zipping by on a track. And she thought, what in the world? And so she went with some other people to go find out about it. And it was the luge. Now, luge is the French word for sled. You've seen those little sleds. They're small sleds. A person hangs off the front and the back. They're lying usually on their back or their stomach and they're heading down a mountain and they're going 90 miles an hour. I mean, it is unbelievable. Well, she walked up to the top and she was there with about 20 people and there was a man running this luge, a modified track, and he said, would any of you like to try the luge? And she said, everybody took one step back. She said, I didn't realize it until I looked around and I was the one standing out front. He said, great. She said, I got on the luge and thought, okay. She said, took the sled down. She loved it. So much so she had contracts for the next two years. She wanted to honor them. But as soon as those last contracts were done, she hadn't made new ones. And she quit and began training for the Olympics in the luge. And sure enough, in her early 30s, she got to compete in luge. And she continued on, Olympic after Olympic after Olympic. She would ultimately qualify for six Olympics. When she was 40 years old and still running the luge, and most of her competitors were 18, 19, 20, they started calling her Grandma Luge. I mean, after all, she was 40 years old. (laughs) Grandma Luge, she was out there running. Eight years later, and when she was 48, she was there at... Salt Lake, and she became the oldest lady to ever participate in the Winter Olympic Games. But she still had another one when she was 52 to Reno, Italy, qualified again, her sixth Olympic. And when she came to Torino, she knew it would be her last. And people were there to interview her and ask her, Why are you doing this? It wasn't a publicity stunt, she was still competing. In the World Cup the year before, she'd come in third in Austria, third in Germany. She still loved what she was doing. And they asked her, why are you doing this? She said, because I'm 52. And I want to say to all those people 50 years and older, get up off your rear. (laughs) Get up off your rear and do something. Live your dreams. You may be 50, but you're not dead. She was on her next to last practice run. When the right rudder on her sled broke, she careened off of the track and crashed, severely injuring her shoulder and breaking her wrist. And that was the end of her Olympic career. And when she was interviewed then, she said, You know, I didn't want it to end this way, but all it simply means is I'm going to start living my dream, my new dream, two days early. Sometimes I look back and I marvel at what God has done in my life. I never dreamed things would turn out the way they did. I just kept taking one step at a time and moving forward, knowing I'm always in God's hands. To keep moving, knowing we are in God's hands. The Good Shepherd, the door that leads to life. The one who is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. 
the good shepherd who says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you want to come to the end knowing you hadn't laid down your best run? Lent is about asking, how are we living our life in the awareness that time is limited? There is death. And so secondly, I believe that you and I can live abundantly. We can face death without fear when you and I live in a spirit of gratitude. It was the Roman centurion, Caesarea, who said, gratitude is not only the greatest of all virtues, but is the parent of all virtues. If you're going to live a virtuous life, if you're going to live a life that is abundant, then I really believe it starts with gratitude. In the season of Lent, you and I focus on the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. And when you begin to think about God's expression of His love, when you begin to think about Christ dying for you and me, we should be moved in a spirit of gratitude. Gratitude for the gift of God's grace. Gratitude for the gift of new beginnings. Grateful for the Good Shepherd who calls us to an abundant life. To be grateful. It is not only the most important of virtues, it is the parent of all virtues. It's hard to live a good life without being grateful. What I thought was interesting when they were interviewing Chloe Kim, here she came down and made her run and they were asking her, why in the world did you do that? I didn't want to take home the gold with a run where I knew I could do better. And then they asked that very profound question, how do you feel? Goodness gracious alive. You know, they, they ask every person who wins the gold medal, how do you feel right now? And, and, you know, they always give the answer. Oh, I can't take it all in at the moment. Oh, my goodness, it's so exciting. Oh, I've sacrificed so much to get here. Oh, I'll have to, I'll figure it out later. They give you all these answers. Not Chloe. They said, so how do you feel? And she said, I'm so grateful. Grateful to my family because we all work so hard to get to this moment. To know that. To understand that, that that be your first motion and feeling, I'm grateful to my family because we all had to work so hard to get to this moment. Do you live in gratitude for the gift of God's grace, the good shepherd who laid down his life? Do you live in gratitude to those around you? This past week, Marsh and I had the opportunity to, to be with our grandkids up in Colorado. Uh, Andy was at work one day, and we had lunch with the family. And I was sitting there beside my oldest grandson, Luke, who's now 13 years old. It's hard to believe. Luke is 13 years old, and I was sitting beside him, and we were just talking and laughing. And, you know, it starts bringing back all the memories. And I got to thinking about a time when he was 13 months old, not 13 years old. 13 months old, they lived in Philadelphia, and Marsh and I decided we were going to fly everybody out to Colorado to, um, as a Christmas gift. We were all going to go skiing together as a family. And so Paul and Krista were flying from 
um, Oklahoma City and Kelly and Andy from Philadelphia. But something was different now. There was that seventh person. No, there now was a 13-month-old, and that changed everything. We couldn't all go ski together as we had in the past. Now we were going to have to take turns babysitting. And we were excited about it. I was very excited to get to be with this grandson, our first one. And I wanted to take him out sledding. I wanted to teach him how to make a snowman. I wanted to teach him how to have snowball fights. I had all kinds of dreams of this 13-month-old little boy. And I was all excited about going up there. We had us a condo. and We were all flying in. We got there. Paul and Krista were going to be a day or two later. Kelly and Andy and Luke had arrived. Well, before we got there, Marsh and I had gone online. We, we wanted to get a sled. You know, we, we didn't think we could rent one. We, we wanted to get a sled. We'd shopped online, found a, a sled you could blow up, had kind of a rail around the back to kind of help support his little body. And, and we were so excited we took it with us. We got up there. We blew that sled up. And the first day, Kelly and, Andy, Kelly and I went skiing. Andy and Marsha stayed back at the condo. And, and we had the sled, and Marsha took out Luke. And she took him on this little sled, and I mean, they had a ball. The memories they made, he just laughed and laughed. He loved being on this sled. And they played and played until finally Marsha was exhausted. And she finally brought him back to the condo. And when she got back to the condo and he realized what was happening, he just cried and cried. He wanted to be on that sled. He didn't want to go inside. But Marsha is a good grandparent, knew what to do, a 13-month-old, get him in, distract him, get him, play him, something else. And so she got him all happy, and he's laughing till he looked over and he saw that sled. He got up and went over and climbed back onto that sled and started to cry again. I mean, they had such a good time and good memories. I could hardly wait for my turn. Two days later, it was our turn to babysit. And so that morning we kind of played around the condo and then we got Luke all dressed up and went out to go take him riding on the sled. And so I'm ready to have some fun and I'm pulling him along these trails right along Gore Creek. And as I'm pulling him along, I look back and there is Luke going. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're not taking a nap right now. We're here to have fun, man. We're going to make some memories. Now, come on, wake up here. So I started running and pulling the sled side to side to jostle him around. And I look back again and <laughs> he's out. No matter what I say, no matter what I do. I mean, this kid is out. And I see him sitting on the sled. He doesn't look comfortable. I go back and I stretch him out and get his head resting against the back and bundle him all up. And I start walking him on along, pulling him up the hill. And I'm really kind of frustrated. I mean, I've envisioned what we're supposed to do. We're going to make memories. We're going to play. We're going to have fun. And I mean, he's sound asleep. And as I'm walking along, people are coming the other way. And whenever they'd see us, they'd stop and they'd just start laughing. And say, man, this kid's got it really good. Look at that, man. I mean, Grandpa, would you pull us? Hey. It's like, Whoa. As I'm pulling him along and I'm looking back, I, I finally just started looking around and I'm seeing these beautiful evergreens heavy with snow. And I found myself just spontaneously breaking into prayer, thanking God for the beauty of his creation. And when I started thanking God for the beauty of this creation, I started also praying and thanking God for my family, that we could all be there together. 
I started thanking God for a 13-month-old grandson who was asleep. There was so much I could give thanks for. And I found myself praying and praying as I pulled him along all the way back to the condo. And I thought about the fact, this really is life. It doesn't work out the way you plan. Things happen. But in the midst of that moment, you can know God's presence. And there is much for which to be grateful. And it is learning to live in a spirit of gratitude, being grateful to the good shepherd who lays down his life. It is learning to be grateful to those who are around you, who have blessed you. That it changes the way you look at living and dying. It is the good shepherd who says, I have come that you might have life more abundantly. This Lent, I pray you and I will start examining our lives in those matters of life and death and life. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.